Isis Audio Books presents an unabridged recording of The Fifth Elephant, written by Terry Pratchett, read by Stephen Briggs. They say the world is flat and supported on the back of four elephants who themselves stand on the back of a giant turtle. They say that the elephants, being such huge beasts, have bones of rock and iron and nerves of gold for better conductivity over long distances. Not rock and iron in their dead form as they are now, but living rock and iron. The dwarfs have quite an inventive mythology about minerals. They say that the fifth elephant came screaming and trumpeting through the atmosphere of the young world all those years ago and landed hard enough to split continents and raise mountains. No one actually saw it land, which raised the interesting philosophical question. When millions of tons of angry elephant come spinning through the sky and there's no one to hear it, does it, philosophically speaking, make a noise? And if there was no one to see it hit, did it actually hit? In other words, wasn't it just a story for children to explain away some interesting natural occurrences? As for the dwarfs, whose legend it is, and who mine a lot deeper than other people, they say that there is a grain of truth in it. On a clear day, from the right vantage point on the ramtops, a watcher could see a very long way across the plains. If it was high summer, they could count the columns of dust as the ox trains plodded on at a top speed of two miles an hour, each pair pulling a train of two wagons carrying four tons apiece. Things took a long time to get anywhere, but when they did, there was certainly a lot of them. To the cities of the Circle Sea, they carried raw material, and sometimes people who were off to seek their fortune and a fistful of diamonds. To the mountains, they brought manufactured goods, rare things from across the oceans, and people who had found wisdom and a few scars. There was usually a day's travelling between each convoy. They turned the landscape into an unrolled time machine. On a clear day, you could see last Tuesday. Heliographs twinkled in the distant air as the columns flashed messages back and forth about bandit presents, cargoes, and the best place to get double egg, treble chips, and a steak that overhung the plate all round. Lots of people travelled on the carts. It was cheap, it beat walking and you got there eventually. Some people travelled for free. The driver of one wagon was having problems with his team. They were skittish. He'd expect this in the mountains where all sorts of wild creatures might regard the oxen as a travelling meal, but here there was nothing more dangerous than cabbages. Behind him, down in a narrow space between loads of cut lumber, something slept. It was just another day in Ankh-Morpork. Sergeant Colon balanced on a shaky ladder at one end of the brass bridge, one of the city's busiest thoroughfares. He clung by one hand to the tall pole with the box on top of it, and with the other he held up a homemade picture book to the slot in front of the box. "'And this is another sort of cart,' he said. "'Got it?' "'Yes,' said a very small voice from within the box. 
"'Okay,' said Colon, apparently satisfied. He dropped the book and pointed down the length of the bridge. "'Now, you see those two markers what has been painted across the cobbles?' "'Yes.' "'And they mean?' "'If a cart goes between them in less than a minute, going too fast,' the little voice parroted. "'Well done, and then you—' "'Paint a picture. "'Taking care to show—' "'Driver's face or cart licence.' "'And if it's night's time, you used a salamander to make it bright.' "'Well done, Rodney. "'And one of us will come along every day and collect your pictures. "'Got everything you want?' "'Yes.' "'What's that, Sergeant?' "'Colon looked down at the very large, brown, upturned face and smiled. "'Afternoon, all,' he said, climbing ponderously down the ladder.' What you are looking at, Mr. Jolson, is the modern watch for the Lumillennianum. It's a bit big, Fred, said old Jolson, looking at it critically. I've seen lots of smaller ones. Watch as in city watch all. Ah, right. Anyone goes too fast round here, and Lord Veterinary'll be looking at his picture next morning. The iconographs do not lie all. Right, Fred. "'Cause they're too stupid.' "'His lordship's got fed up with carts speeding over the bridge, see, "'and asked us to do something about it. "'I'm head of traffic now, you know. "'Is that good, Fred?' "'I should just think so,' said Sergeant Colon expansively. "'It's up to me to keep the, uh, arteries of the city from clogging up, "'leading to a complete breakdown of commerce and ruination for us all. "'Most vital job there is, you could say.' And it's just you doing it, is it? Well, mainly, mainly. Corporal Nobbs and the other lads help, of course. Old Jolson scratched his nose. It was on a similar subject that I wanted to talk to you, Fred, he said. No problem, all? Something very odd's turned up outside my restaurant, Fred. Sergeant Colon followed the huge man round the corner. Fred usually liked all's company because... Next to all, he was very skinny indeed. All Jolson was a man who'd show up on an atlas and change the orbit of small planets. Paving stones cracked under his feet. He combined in one body, and there was plenty of room left over, Ankh-Morpork's best chef and its keenest eater. A circumstance made in mashed potato heaven. Sergeant Colon couldn't remember what the man's real first name had been, He'd picked up the nickname by general acclaim, since no one seeing him in the street for the first time could believe that it was all Jolson. There was a big cart on Broadway. Other traffic was backed up trying to manoeuvre round it. "'Had my meat delivered at lunchtime, Fred, and when my carter came out,' all Jolson pointed to the large triangular construction locked around one wheel of the cart. It was made of oak and steel, with yellow paint sloshed over it. Fred tapped it carefully. "'I can see where your problem is right here,' he said. "'So how long is your carter in there?' "'Well, I gave him lunch. "'And very good lunches you do all, I've always said. "'What was he special today?' "'Smitten steak with cream sauce and slumpy "'and black death meringue to follow,' said old Jolson. "'There was a moment of silence as they both pictured this meal. "'Fred Colon gave a little sigh.' Butter on the slumpy? You wouldn't insult me by suggesting I'd leave it off, would you? 
"'A man could linger a long time over a meal like that,' said Fred. "'The trouble is, the patrician all gets very short about carts parking on the street for more than ten minutes. He reckons that's a sort of crime.' "'Taking ten minutes to eat one of my lunches isn't a crime, Fred. "'It's a tragedy,' said all. "'It says here, City Watch, fifteen dollars removal, Fred. "'That's a couple of days' profits, Fred.' "'Thing is,' said Fred Colon, "'it'll be paperwork, see. "'I can't just wave that away. "'I only wish I could. "'There's all them counterfoils on the spike in my office.' If it was me running the watch, of course, but my hands are tied, see. The two men stood some way apart, hands in pockets, apparently paying little attention to one another. Sergeant Colon began to whistle under his breath. I know a thing or two, said All carefully. People think waiters ain't got ears. They know lots of stuff, All, said Colon, jingling his pockets change. Both men stared at the sky for a while. I may have some honey ice cream left over from yesterday. Sergeant Colon looked down at the cart. Here, Mr. Jolson, he said, in a voice of absolute surprise. Some complete bastards put some kind of clamp on your wheel. Well, we'll soon see about that. Colon pulled a couple of round, white-painted paddles from his belt, sighted on the watch-house semaphore tower peeking over the top of the old lemonade factory, waited until the watching gargoyle signalled him, and with a certain amount of verve and flair, ripped off an impression of a man with stiff arms playing two games of table tennis at once. The team will be along any minute. Ah, watch this. A little further along the street, two trolls were carefully clamping a hay wagon. After a minute or two, one of them happened to glance at the watch-house tower, nudged his colleague, produced two bats of his own, and with rather less élan than Sergeant Colon, sent a signal. When it was answered, the trolls looked around, spotted Colon, and lumbered towards him. Ta-da! said Colon proudly. Amazing, this new technology, said all Jolson admiringly. And they must have been, what, forty or fifty yards away? It's right all. In the old days I'd have had to blow a whistle, and they'll arrive here knowing it was me who wanted them, too. "'Instead of having to look and see it was you,' said Jolson. "'Well, yeah,' said Colon, aware that what had transpired might not be the brightest ray of light in the new dawn of the communications revolution. "'Of course, it would have worked just as well if they'd been streets away, on the other side of the city even. "'And if I told the gargoyle to, as we say, put it on the big tower over on the tump, they'd have got it in Stolat within minutes, see? "'And that's twenty miles!' At least. Amazing, Fred. Time moves on, all, said Colon, as the trolls reached them. Constable Chert, who told you to clamp my friend's cart? he demanded. Well, Sarge, this morning you said we was to clamp every... Not this cart, said Colon. Unlock it right now, and we'll say no more about it, eh? Constable Chert seemed to reach the conclusion that he wasn't being paid to think, and this was just as well because Sergeant Colon did not believe trolls gave value for money in that department. "'If you say so, Sarge. "'While you're doing that, me and all here will have a little chat, right, all?' said Fred Colon. "'That's right, Fred. "'Well, I say chat. 
but I'll be mostly listening on account of having my mouth full. Snow cascaded from the fir branches. The man forced his way through, stood fighting for breath for a moment, and then set off across the clearing at a fast trot. Across the valley he heard the first blast on the horn. He had an hour then, if he could trust them. He might not make it to the tower, but there were other ways out. He had plans. He could outwit them. Keep off the snow as much as you can, double back, make use of the streams. It was possible. It had been done before. He was sure of that. A few miles away, sleek bodies set out through the forest. The hunt was on. Elsewhere in Ankh-Morpork, the Fool's Guild was on fire. This was a problem because the Guild's fire brigade consisted largely of clowns. And this was a problem because if you show a clown a bucket of water and a ladder, he only knows one way to act. Years of training take over. It's something in the red nose speaking to him. He can't help himself. Sam Vimes of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch leaned against a wall and watched the show. We really must put that proposal for a civic fire service to the patrician again, he said. Across the street a clown picked up a ladder, turned, knocked the clown behind him into a bucket of water, then turned again to see what the commotion was, thus sending his rising victim into the bucket again with a surprising parping noise. The crowd watched silently. If it was funny, clowns wouldn't be doing it. The guilds are all very much against it, said Captain Carrot Iron Founderson, his second in command, as the clown with the ladder had a bucket of water poured down his trousers. They say it'll be trespass. The fire had taken hold in a first-floor room. If we let it burn, it'll be a blow for entertainment in this city, said Carrot earnestly. Vimes looked sideways at him. That was a true Carrot comment. It sounded as innocent as hell, but you could take it a different way. It certainly would, he said. Nevertheless, I suppose we'd better do something. He stepped forward and cupped his hands. All right, this is the watch. Bucket chain, he shouted. Oh, must we, said someone in the crowd. Yes, you must, said Captain Carrot. Come on, everyone. If we form two lines, we'll have this done in no time at all. What do you say, eh? It might even be fun. And they did it, Vimes noted. Carrot treated everyone as if they were jolly good chaps, and somehow, in some inexplicable way, they couldn't resist the urge not to prove him wrong. And to the disappointment of the crowd, the fire was soon put out, once the clowns were disarmed and led away by kind people. Carrot reappeared, wiping his forehead as Vimes lit a cigar. Apparently the fire-eater was sick, he said. It's just possible we might never be forgiven, said Vimes as they set off on patrol again. Oh, no, what now? Carrot was staring upwards towards the nearest Clax Tower. Riot in Cable Street, he said. It's all officers, sir. They broke into a run. You always did for an all officers. The people in trouble might well be you. There were more dwarfs on the streets as they got nearer, and Vimes recognised the signs. The dwarfs all wore preoccupied looks and were walking in the same direction. It's over, he said as they ran to the corner. You can tell by the sudden increase of suspiciously innocent bystanders. Whatever else the emergency had been, it had been a big one. The street was strewn with debris and a fair amount of dwarfs. Vime slowed down. Third time this week, he said. What's got into them? 
Hard to say, sir, said Carrot. Vimes shot him a glance. Carrot had been raised by dwarfs. He also, if he could possibly avoid it, never told a lie. That isn't the same as I don't know, is it? he said. The captain looked awkward. I think it's sort of political, he said. Vimes noted a throwing axe buried in a wall. Yes, I can see that, he said. Someone was coming along the street, and was probably the reason why the riot had broken up. Lance Constable Blue John was the biggest troll Vimes had ever met. He loomed. He was so big that he didn't stand out in the crowd because he was the crowd. People failed to see him because he was in the way. And like many overgrown people, he was instinctively gentle and rather shy and inclined to let others tell him what to do. If fate had led him to join a gang, he'd be the muscle. In the watch, he was the riot shield. Other watchmen were peering around him. Looks like it started in Gimlet's delicatessen, said Vimes, as the rest of the watch moved in. Get a statement of Gimlet. Not a good idea, sir, said Carrot firmly. He didn't see anything. How do you know he didn't see anything? You haven't asked him. I know, sir. He didn't see anything. He didn't hear anything either. With a mob trashing his restaurant and scrapping the street outside? That's right, sir. Ah, I get it. There's none so deaf as those that won't hear, are you saying? Something like that, sir, yes. Look, it's all over, sir. I don't think anyone's seriously hurt. It'll be for the best, sir, please. Is this one of those private dwarf things, Captain? Yes, sir. Well, this is Ankh Morport, Captain, not some mine in the mountains, and it's my job to keep the peace. And this, Captain, doesn't look like it. What are people going to say about rioting in the streets? They'll say it's another day in the life of the big city, sir, said Carrot woodenly. Yeah, I suppose they would at that. However, Vimes picked up a groaning dwarf. Who did this? he demanded. I'm not in the mood for being messed around. Come on, I want a name. Aggie Hammerthief, muttered the dwarf, struggling. All right, said Vimes, letting him go. Write that down, Carrot. No, sir, said Carrot. Excuse me? There is no Aggie Hammer Thief in the city, sir. You know every dwarf? A lot of them, sir. But Aggie Hammer Thief is only found down mines, sir. He's a sort of mischievous spirit, sir. For example, put it where Aggie puts the coal, sir, means... Yes, I can guess, said Vimes. You're telling me that that dwarf just said that this riot was started by sweet Fanny Adams. The dwarf had disappeared smartly round a corner. More or less, sir. Excuse me a moment, sir. Carrot stepped across the street, pulling two white-painted paddles out of his belt. "'I'll just get a line of sight on a tower,' he said. "'I'd better send a clax.' "'Why?' "'Well, we've kept the patrician waiting, sir, "'so it'd be good manners to let him know we're late.' Vimes pulled out his watch and stared at it. It was turning out to be one of those days, the sort you got every day. It is in the nature of the universe that the person who always keeps you waiting ten minutes will, on the day you are ten minutes tardy, have been ready ten minutes early and will make a point of not mentioning this. "'Sorry we're late, sir,' said Vimes as they entered the oblong office. "'Oh, are you late?' said Lord Vetinari, looking up from his paperwork. "'I really hadn't noticed nothing serious, I trust.' "'The Fool's Guild caught fire, sir,' said Carrot. "'Many casualties?' No, sir. Well, that is a blessing, said Lord Vetinari carefully. He put down his pen. Now, 
What do we have to discuss? He pulled another document towards him and read it swiftly. Ah, I see that the new traffic division is having the desired effect, he indicated a large pile of paper. I am getting any amount of complaints from the Carters and Drovers Guild. Well done. Do pass on my thanks to Sergeant Colon and his team. I will, sir. I see in one day they clamped seventeen carts, ten horses, eighteen oxen, and one duck. It was parked illegally, sir. Indeed. However, a strange pattern seems to emerge. Sir? Many of the carters say that they were not in fact parked, but had merely halted while an extremely old and extremely ugly lady crossed the road extremely slowly. That's their story, sir. They know she was an old lady by her constant litany on the lines of Oh, dearie me, my poor old feet, and similar expressions. Certainly sounds like an old lady to me, sir, said Vimes his face wooden. Quite so. What is rather strange is that several of them then report seeing the old lady, subsequently legging it away along an alley rather fast. I discount this, of course, were it not for the fact that the lady has apparently been seen crossing another street, very slowly, some distance away shortly afterwards. Something of a mystery, Vimes. Vimes put his hand over his eyes. It's one I intend to solve quite quickly, sir. Patrician nodded and made a short note on the list in front of him. As he went to move it aside, he uncovered a much grubbier, much folded scrap of paper. He picked up two letter knives and, using them fastidiously, unfolded the paper and inched it across the desk towards Vimes. Do you know anything about this? he said. Vimes read in large, round, crayoned letters, D. Er. Kerr, the cruelty to homeless dogs in this city is a disgrace. What are the watch do ing a bout it? Signed, the leak against cruel tea to dogs. Not a thing, he said. My clerks say that one like it is pushed under the door most nights, said the patrician. Apparently no one is seen. Do you want me to investigate, said Vimes? It shouldn't be hard to find someone in this city who dribbles when he writes and spells even worse than Carrot. Thank you, sir, said Carrot. None of the guards report noticing anyone, said the patrician. Is there any group in Ankh-Morpork particularly interested in the welfare of dogs? I doubt it, sir. Then I shall ignore it, pro tem, said Vetinari. He let the soggy letter splash into the waste paper basket. On to more pressing matters, he said briskly. Now then, what do you know about Bonk? Vimes stared. There was a polite cough from Carrot. The river or the town, sir, he said. The patrician smiled. Ah, Captain, you have long ago ceased to surprise me. Yes, I was referring to the town. It's one of the major towns in Uberwald, sir, said Carrot. Exports, precious metals, leather, timber, and, of course, fats from the deep fat mines at Schmalzberg. There's a place called Bonk, said Vimes, 
still marvelling at the speed with which they'd got here from a damp letter about dogs. "'Strictly speaking, sir, it's more correctly pronounced Bionk, said Carrot. "'Even so. "'And in Bionk, sir, more pork sounds exactly like their word for an item of ladies' underwear,' said Carrot. "'There's only so many syllables in the world when you come to think about it.' "'How do you know all this stuff, Carrot?' "'Oh, you pick it up, sir, here and there.' "'Really? So exactly which item of—' "'Something extremely important will be taking place there in a few weeks,' said Lord Vetinari. "'Something which, I have to add, is vital to the future prosperity of Ankh Morpork.' "'The crowning of the Law King,' said Carrot. Vimes stared from him to the patrician and back again. "'Is there some kind of circular that goes around which doesn't get as far as me?' he said. "'The dwarf community has been talking about little else for months, sir.' "'Really?' said Vimes. "'You mean the riots? Those fights every night in the dwarf bars?' "'Captain Carrot is correct, Vimes. It will be a grand occasion, "'attended by representatives of many governments.' and from various Uberwald principalities, of course, because the low king only rules those areas of Uberwald that are below ground. His favour is valuable. Borogravia and Genua will be there, without a doubt, and probably even Clatch. Clatch? But they're even further from Uberwald than we are. What are they bothering to go for? He paused for a moment and then added, Ha! I'm being stupid. Where's the money? I beg your pardon, Commander? That's what my old sergeant used to say when he was puzzled, sir. Find out where the money is and you've got it half solved. Vetinari stood up and walked over to the big window with his back to them. A large country, Uberwald, he said, apparently addressing the glass. Dark, mysterious, ancient. Huge untapped reserves of coal and iron ore, said Carrot. And fat, of course. The best candles, lamp oils, and soap come ultimately from the Schmaltzbeg deposits. Why? We've got our own slaughterhouse, haven't we? Ankh Morpork uses a great many candles, sir. It certainly doesn't use much soap, said Vimes. There are so many uses for fats and tallow, sir, we couldn't possibly supply ourselves. Ah, said Vimes. The patrician sighed. Obviously, I hope that we may strengthen our trading links with the various nations within Uberwald, he said. The situation there is volatile in the extreme. Do you know much about Uberwald, Commander Vimes? Vimes, whose knowledge of geography was microscopically detailed within five miles of Ankh Morpork, and merely microscopic beyond that, nodded uncertainly. Only that it's not really a country, said Vimes, it's... "'It's rather more what you get before you get countries,' said Carrot. "'It's mainly fortified towns and fiefdoms, with no real boundaries and lots of forest in between. "'There's always some sort of feud going on. "'There's no law apart from whatever the local lords enforce, and banditry of all kinds is rife.' "'So unlike the home life of our own dear city,' said Vimes, not quite under his breath. "'The patrician gave him an impassive glance. "'In Uberwald?' "'The dwarfs and trolls haven't settled their old grievances,' Carrot continued. "'There are large areas controlled by feudal vampire or werewolf clans, "'and there are also tracts with much higher than normal background magic. "'It is a chaotic place indeed, and you'd hardly think you're in the century of the fruit bat.' 
It is to be hoped that things will improve, however, and Uberwald will happily be joining the community of nations. Vimes and Vetinari exchanged looks. Sometimes Carrot sounded like a civics essay written by a stunned choir boy. Well put, said the patrician at last, but until that joysome day, Uberwald remains a mystery inside a riddle wrapped in an enigma. Let me see if I've got this right, said Vimes. Uberwald is like this big suet pudding that everyone suddenly noticed, and now with this coronation as an excuse, we've all got to rush there with knife, fork and spoon to shovel as much on our plates as possible. Your grasp of political reality is masterly, Vimes. You lack only the appropriate vocabulary. Ankh-Morpork must send a representative, obviously. An ambassador, as it were. You're not suggesting I should go to this affair, are you? said Vimes. Oh, I couldn't send the commander of the city watch, said Lord Vetinari. Most of the Uberwald countries have no concept of a modern civil peacekeeping authority. Vimes relaxed. I'm sending the Duke of Ankh instead. Vimes sat bolt upright. They are mostly feudal systems, Vetinari went on. They set great store by rank. I'm not being ordered to go to Uberwald. Ordered, Your Grace? Vetinari looked shocked and concerned. Good heavens, I must have misunderstood Lady Sybil. She told me yesterday that a holiday a long way from Ankh Morpork would do you the world of good. You spoke to Sybil? At the reception for the new president of the Tailors Guild, yes. I believe you left early. You were called away. Some emergency, I understand. Lady Sybil happened to mention how you seemed to be, as she put it, constantly on the job, and one thing led to another. Oh, dear, I do hope I haven't caused some marital misunderstanding. I can't leave the city now, of all times, said Vimes desperately. There's so much to do. That is exactly why Sybil says you ought to leave the city, said Vetinari. But there's a new training school. Ticking over nicely now, sir, said Carrot. The old carrier pigeon network is a complete mess. More or less sorted out, sir, now we've changed their feed. Besides, the clacks seems to be functioning very well. We've got to get the river watch set up. Can't do much for the week or two, sir, until we've dredged up the boat. The drains at the Chitling Street station are... I've got the plumbers working on it, sir. Vimes knew he had lost. He had lost as soon as Sybil was involved, because she was always a reliable siege engine against the walls of his defences. But there was such a thing as going down fighting. You know I'm no good at diplomatic talk, he said. On the contrary, Vimes... You appear to have amazed the diplomatic corps here in Ankh-Morpork, said Lord Vetinari. They're not used to plain speech. It confuses them. What was it you said to the Istanzian ambassador last month? He riffled through the papers on his desk. Let me see the complaint is here somewhere. Oh, yes, on the matter of military incursions across the Slipnir River, you indicated that further transgressions would involve him... Personally, that is to say, the ambassador, and I quote, going home in an ambulance. I'm sorry about that, sir, but it had been a long day, and he was really getting on my... Since when, their armed forces have pulled back so far that they are nearly in the next country, said Lord Vetinari, moving the paper aside. I have to say that your observation complied only with the general thrust of my view in this matter, but was at least succinct. Apparently... 
you also looked at the ambassador in a very threatening way. It was only the way I usually look, to be sure. Happily, in Uberwald, you will only need to look friendly. Ah, oh, oh, but you don't want me saying things like, how about selling us all your fat really cheap, do you? said Vimes desperately. You will not be required to do any negotiating, Vimes. That will be dealt with by one of my clerks, who will set up the temporary embassy and discuss such matters with his opposite numbers among the courts of Uberwald. All clerks speak the same language. You will simply be as ducal as you can, and of course you will take a retinue. A staff, Vetinari added, seeing Vimes's blank look. He sighed. People to go with you. I suggest Sergeant Angua, Sergeant Detritus, and Corporal Littlebottom. Ah, said Carrot, nodding encouragingly. Sorry, said Vimes. I think there must have been a whole piece of conversation just then that I must have missed. A werewolf, a troll, and a dwarf, said Carrot. Ethnic minorities, sir. But in Uberwald they are ethnic majorities, said Lord Vetinari. All three officers come from there originally, I believe. Their presence will speak volumes. So far it hasn't sent me a postcard, said Vimes. I'd rather take... Sir, it will show people in Uberwald that Ankh-Morpork is a multicultural society, you see, said Carrot. Oh, I see. People like us. People you can do business with, said Vimes glumly. Sometimes, Vetinari said testily, it really does seem to me that the culture of cynicism in the watch is... is... insufficient, said Vimes. There was a silence. All right, he sighed. I'd better go off and polish the knobs on my coronet, hadn't I? The ducal coronet, if I remember my heraldry, does not have knobs on. It is decidedly spiky, said the patrician, pushing across the desk a small pile of papers topped by a gold-edged invitation card. Good. I will have a... a clax sent immediately. You will be more fully briefed later. Do give my regards to the Duchess. And now, please do not let me detain you further. He always says that, muttered Vimes, as the two men hurried down the stairs. He knows I don't like being married to a Duchess. I thought you and Lady Sibyl... Oh, being married to Sibyl is fine, fine, said Vimes hurriedly. It's the Duchess bit I don't like. Where is everyone tonight? Corporal Littlebottom's on pigeon duty, Detritus is on night patrol with Swires, and Angua's on special duty in the shade, sir. You remember, with Nobby. Oh, gods, yes. Well, when they come in tomorrow, you'd better get them to report to me. Incidentally, get that bloody wig off Nobby and hide it, will you? Vimes leafed through the paperwork. I've never heard of the low king of the dwarfs. I thought that king in dwarfish just meant a sort of senior engineer. Ah, well, the law king is rather special, said Carrot. Why? Well, it all starts with a scone of stone, sir. The what? Would you mind a little detour on the way back to the yard, sir? It'll make things clearer. The young woman stood on a corner in the shades. Her general stance indicated that she was, in the specialised patois of the area, a lady-in-waiting. To be more precise, a lady-in-waiting for Mr. Wright, or at least Mr. Wright amount. She idly swung her handbag. This was a very recognisable signal for anyone with the brains of a pigeon. A member of the Thieves' Guild would have passed carefully by on the other side of the lane, giving her nothing more than a gentlemanly and above all non-aggressive nod. 
even the less polite freelance thieves who lurked in this area would have thought twice before eyeing the handbag. The Seamstresses Guild operated a very swift and non-reversible kind of justice. The skinny body of Dunnett Duncan, however, did not have the brains of a pigeon. The little man had been watching the bag like a cat for fully five minutes, and now the very thought of its contents had hypnotised him. He could practically taste the money. He rose on his toes, lowered his head, dashed out of the alley, grabbed the bag and got several inches before the world exploded behind him and he ended up flat in the mud. Something right by his ear started to drool, and there was a long, very long drawn-out growl, not changing in tone at all, just unrolling a deep promise of what would happen if he tried to move. He heard footsteps, and out of the corner of his eyes saw a swirl of lace. "'Oh, done it!' said a voice. "'Bag snatching, that's a bit low, isn't it, even for you?' You could have got really hurt. Oh, it's only Duncan, miss. He'll be no trouble. You can let him up. The weight was removed from Duncan's back. He heard something pad off into the gloom of an alley. I done it, I done it, said the little thief desperately as Corporal Nobbs helped him to his feet. Yes, I know you did. I saw you, said Nobby. And you know what would happen to you if the Thieves' Guild spotted you? You'd be dead in the river with no time off for good behaviour. They hate me because I'm so good, said Duncan through his matted beard. Here, you know that robbery at all Jolson's last month? I done that. That's right, Duncan, you done that. And that all at the gold vaults last week? I done that too. It wasn't Coldface and his boys. No, it was you, wasn't it, Duncan? And that job at the goldsmiths that everyone says Crunchy Ron done? You done that, did you? That's right, said Duncan. And it was you what stole fire from the gods too, wasn't it, Duncan? Said Nobby, grinning evilly under his wig. Yeah, that was me. Duncan nodded. He sniffed. I was a bit younger then, of course. He peered short-sightedly at Nobby Nobbs. What have you got a dress on, Nobby? It's us, ash, Duncan. Ah, oh, right. Duncan shifted uneasily. You couldn't spare me a bob or two, could you, Nobby? I ain't eaten for two days. Small coins gleamed in the dark. Now push off, said Corporal Nobbs. Thanks, Nobby. You got any unsolved crimes? You know where to find me. Duncan lurched off into the night. Sergeant Angua appeared behind Nobby, buckling on her breastplate. Poor old devil, she said. He was a good thief in his day, said Nobby, taking a notebook out of his handbag and jotting down a few lines. Kind of you to help him, said Angua. Well, I can get the money back out of petty cash, said Nobby. And now we know who did the bullying job, don't we? That'll be a feather in my cap with Mr Vimes. Bonnet, Nobby. What? Your bonnet, Nobby. It's got a rather fetching band of flowers around it. Oh, yeah. It's not that I'm complaining, said Angua, but when we were assigned to this job, I thought it was me who was going to be the decoy, and you who was going to be the backup, Nobby. Yeah, but what were you being... Nobby's expression creased as he edged his way into unfamiliar linguistic territory. More for logic. Curly gifted. A werewolf, Nobby. I know the word. Right, well, obviously, you'd be a lot better at lurking, and, uh, and obviously, it's not right. Women having to act as decoys in police work. Angua hesitated, as she so often did when attempting to talk to Nobby on difficult matters, and waved her hands in front of her as if trying to shape the invisible dough of her thoughts.
It's just that... I mean, people might... She began. I mean, well, you know what people call men who wear wigs and gowns, don't you? Yes, miss. You do? Yes, miss. Lawyers, miss. Good. Yes, good, said Angua slowly. Now try another one. Uh, actors, miss? Angua gave up. You look good in taffeta, Nobby, she said. You don't think it makes me look too fat? Angua sniffed. Oh, no, she said quietly. I thought I'd better put scent on for very silly mitude, said Nobby quickly. What? Oh, Angua shook her head and took another breath. I can smell something else. That's surprising, because this stuff's a bit on the pungent side, and frankly, I don't think Lily of the Valley is supposed to smell like this. It's not perfume. But the lavender stuff they had you could clean brass with. Can you get back to the chiselling station by yourself, Nobby? said Angua. Despite her rising panic, she mentally added, After all, what could happen? I mean, really? Yes, miss? There's something I'd better sort out. Angua hurried away, the new scent filling her nostrils. It would have to be powerful to combat odour knobs, and it was. Oh, it was. Not here, she thought. Not now. Not him. The running man swung along a branch wet with snow and managed at last to lower himself onto a branch belonging to the next tree. That took him a long way from the stream. How good was their sense of smell? Pretty damn good, he knew, but this good? He'd got out of the stream onto another overhanging branch. If they'd followed the banks, and they'd be bright enough to do that, they'd surely never know he'd left the stream. There was a howl away to the left. He headed right, into the gloom of the forest. Vimes heard Carrot scrabble around in the gloom and the sound of a key in the lock. I thought the campaign for Equal Heights was running this place now, he said. It's so hard to find volunteers, said Carrot, ushering him through the low door and lighting a candle. I come in every day just to keep an eye on things, but no one else seems very interested. I can't imagine why, said Vimes, looking around the Dwarf Bread Museum. The one positive thing you could say about the bread products around him was that they were probably as edible now as they had been on the day they were baked. Forged was a better term. Dwarf bread was made as a meal of last resort and also as a weapon and a currency. Dwarfs were not, as far as Vimes knew, religious in any way, but the way they thought about bread came close. There was a tinkle and a scrabbling noise somewhere in the gloom. Rats, said Carrot. They never stop trying to eat dwarf bread, poor things. Ah, here we are, the scone of stone. A replica, of course. Vimes stared at the misshapen thing on its dusty display stand. It was vaguely scone-like, but only if someone pointed this out to you beforehand. Otherwise, the term a lump of rock was pretty accurate. It was about the size and shape of a well-sat-on cushion. There were a few fossilised currants visible. My wife rests her feet on something like that when she's had a long day, he said. It's fifteen hundred years old, said Carrot, with something like awe in his voice. I thought this was a replica. Well, yes, but it's a replica of a very important thing, sir, said Carrot. Vimes sniffed. The air had a certain pungent quality. 
smells strongly of cats in here, doesn't it? I'm afraid they get in after the rats, sir. A rat who's nibbled on dwarf bread tends not to be able to run very fast. Vimes lit a cigar. Carrot gave it a look of uncertain disapproval. We do thank people for not smoking in here, sir, he said. Why? You don't know they're not going to, said Vimes. He leaned against the display cabinet. All right, Captain. Why am I really going to... Bonk? I don't know a lot about diplomacy, but I do know it's never just about one thing. What's the low king? Why are our dwarfs scrapping? Well, sir, have you heard of... Crack. Dwarf mining law, said Vimes. Well done, sir. But it's a lot more than that. It's about how you live. Laws of ownership, marriage laws, inheritance, rules for dealing with disputes of all kinds, that sort of thing. Everything, really. And the low king, well, you could call him the final court of appeal. He's advised, of course, but he's got the last word. Still with me? Makes sense so far. And he is crowned on the scone of stone and sits on it to give his judgments because all the low kings have done that ever since Bahrian Bloodaxe, fifteen hundred years ago. It gives authority. Vimes nodded dowly. That made sense too. You did something because it had always been done, and the explanation was, but we've always done it this way. A million dead people can't have been wrong, can they? Does he get elected or born or what, he said. I suppose you could say he's elected, said Carrot. But really, a lot of senior dwarfs arrange it amongst themselves. After listening to other dwarfs, of course. Taking soundings, it's called. Traditionally, he's from one of the big families, but, uh, Yes? Things are a little different this year. Tempers are a bit... Stretched. Ah, thought Vimes. Wrong dwarf one, he said. Some dwarfs would say so, but it's more that the whole process has been called into question, said Carrot, by the dwarfs in the biggest dwarf city outside Uberwald. Don't tell me, that must be that place hubwards of... It's Ankh-Morpork, sir. What? We're not a dwarf city? Fifty thousand dwarfs now, sir. Really? Yes, sir. Are you sure? Yes, sir. Of course he is, Vimes thought. He probably knows them all by name. You have to understand, sir, that there's a sort of big debate going on, said Carrot, on how you define a dwarf. Well, some people might say they're called dwarfs because... No, sir, not size. Nobby Nobs is shorter than many dwarfs, and we don't call him a dwarf. We don't call him human, either, said Vimes. And, of course, I am also a dwarf. You know... Carrot, I keep meaning to talk to you about that. Adopted by dwarfs, brought up by dwarfs, to dwarfs I'm a dwarf, sir. I can do the rite of Kazakra. I know the secrets of Haragna. I can halk my Graka correctly. I am a dwarf. What do those things mean? I'm not allowed to tell non-dwarfs. Carrot tactfully tried to stand out of the way of the cigar smoke. Unfortunately, some of the mountain dwarfs think that the dwarfs who moved away aren't proper dwarfs either. But this time, the kingship has been swung by the views of the Ankh-Morpork dwarfs, and a lot of dwarfs back home don't like it. There's been a lot of bad feeling all round. Families falling out, that sort of thing. Much pulling of beards. 
really? Vimes tried not to smile. It's not funny if you're a dwarf. Sorry. And I'm afraid this new low king is only going to make matters worse, although, of course, I wish him well. Tough, is he? Uh, I think you can assume, sir, that any dwarf who rises sufficiently in dwarf society to even be considered as a candidate for the kingship did not get there by singing the high-ho song and bandaging wounded animals in a forest. But by dwarf standards, King Rhys Rhysson is a modern thinker, although I hear he doesn't like Ankh Morpork very much. Sounds like a very clear thinker, too. Anyway, this has upset a lot of the more, uh, traditional mountain dwarfs who thought the next king would be Albrecht Albrechtsen, who is not a modern thinker. He thinks even coming up above ground is dangerously non-dwarfish. Vimes sighed. Well, I can see there's a problem, Carrot, but the thing about this problem, the key point, is it's not mine, or yours, dwarf or not. He tapped the scone's case. Replica, eh? he said. Sure it's not the real one? Sir, there is only one real scone. We call it the thing and the whole of the thing. Well, if it's a good replica, who'd know? Any dwarf would, sir. Only joking. There was a hamlet down there where two rivers met. There would be boats. This was working. The slopes behind him were white and free of dark shapes. No matter how good they were, let them try to outswim a boat. Hard-packed snow crunched under his feet. He staggered past the few rough hovels, saw the jetty, saw the boats, fought with the frozen rope that moored the nearest one, grabbed an oar and pushed himself out into the current. There was still no movement on the hills. Now, at last, he could take stock. It was a bigger boat than one man could handle, but all he had to do was fend off the banks. That would do for tonight. In the morning he could leave it somewhere and perhaps ask someone to get a message through to the tower. Then he'd buy a horse and... Behind him, under the tarpaulin in the bows, something started to growl. They really were very clever. In a castle not very far away, the vampire Lady Margalotta sat quietly leafing through Twerp's peerage. It wasn't a very good reference book for the countries on this side of the Ramtops, where the standard work was the Almanac de Gothic, in which she herself occupied almost four pages. Vampires evolve long names. It's something to do to pass the long years. But if you needed to know who thought they were who in Ankh-Morpork, it was invaluable. Her copy was now bristling with bookmarks. She sighed and pushed it away. Beside her was a fluted glass containing a red liquid. She took a sip and made a face. Then she stared at the candlelight and tried to think like Lord Vetinari. How much did he suspect? How much news got back? The Clax Tower had only been up for about a month and it was being roundly denounced throughout Bionk as an intrusion. But it seemed to be doing a good, if stealthy, local traffic. Who would he send? His choice would tell her everything, she was sure. Someone like Lord Rust or Lord Salachi. Well, she'd think a lot less of him. From all that she had heard, and Lady Margalotta heard a lot of things, the Ankh-Morpork diplomatic corps as a whole could not find its backside with a map. Of course, it was good business for a diplomat to appear stupid, right up to the moment where he'd stolen your socks, but Lady Margalotta had met some of Ankh-Morpork's finest, and no one could act that well.
The growing howling outside began to get on her nerves. She rang for her butler. Yes, mistress, said Igor, materialising out of the shadows. Go and tell the children of the night to make wonderful music somewhere else, will you? I have a headache. Indeed, mistress. Lady Margolotta yawned. It had been a long night. She'd think better after a good day's sleep. As she went to blow out the candle, she glanced again at the book. There was a marker in the V's. But surely even the patrician couldn't know that much. She hesitated and then pulled the bell rope above the coffin. Igor reappeared, in the way of Igor's. Those keen young men at the Clack's Tower will be awake, won't they? Yes, mistress. Send a Clax to our agent asking for everything about Commander Vimes of the Watch, will you? Is he a diplomat, mistress? Lady Margolotta lay back. No, Igor, he's the reason for diplomats. Close the lid, will you? Sam Vimes could parallel process. Most husbands can. They learn to follow their own line of thought while at the same time listening to what their wives say. And the listening is important because at any time they could be challenged and must be ready to quote the last sentence in full. A vital additional skill is being able to scan the dialogue for telltale phrases such as, and they can deliver it tomorrow, or so I've invited them for dinner, or they can do it in blue really quite cheaply. Lady Sibyl was aware of this. Sam could coherently carry an entire conversation while thinking about something completely different. "'I'll tell Willikins to pack winter clothes,' she said, watching him. "'It'll be pretty cold up there at this time of year.' "'Yeah, that's a good idea,' Vimes continued to stare at a point just above the fireplace. "'We'll have to host a party ourselves, I expect, so we ought to take a cartload of typical ank-more-pork food.' Show the flag, you know. Do you think I should take a cook along? Yes, dear, that would be a good idea. No one outside the city knows how to make a knuckle sandwich properly. Sybil was impressed. Ears operating entirely on automatic had nevertheless triggered the mouth into making a small but pertinent contribution. She said, Do you think we ought to take the alligator with us? Yes, that might be advisable. She watched his face. Small furrows formed on Vimes's brow as the ears nudged the brain. He blinked. What, alligator? You are miles away, Sam. In Uberwald, I expect. Sorry. Is there a problem? Why is he sending me, Sybil? I'm sure Havelock shares with me a conviction that you have hidden depths, Sam. Vimes sank gloomily into his armchair. It was, he felt, a persistent flaw in his wife's otherwise practical and sensible character that she believed, against all evidence, that he was a man of many talents. He knew he had hidden depths. There was nothing in them that he'd like to see float to the surface. They contained things that should be left to lie. There was also a nagging worry that he couldn't quite pin down. Had he been able to, he might have expressed it like this. Policemen didn't go on holiday. Where you got policemen, as Lord Vetinari was wont to remark, you got crime. So if he went to Bionk, however you pronounce the damn place, there would be a crime. It was something the world always laid on for policemen. It'll be nice to see Seraphine again, said Sybil. 
Yes, indeed, said Vimes. In Bionk he would not, officially, be a policeman. He did not like this at all. He liked this even less than all the other things. On the few occasions he'd been outside Ankh-Morpork and its surrounding fiefdom, he'd either been going to other local cities where the Ankh-Morpork badge carried some weight, or he had been in hot pursuit, that most ancient and honourable of police procedures. From the way Carrot talked, in Bionk his badge would merely figure as extra roughage on someone's menu. His brow wrinkled again. Seraphine, Lady Seraphine von Uberwald, said Sybil, Sergeant Angua's mother. You remember me telling you last year? We were at finishing school together. Of course, we all knew she was a werewolf, but nobody would ever dream of talking about that sort of thing in those days. Well, you just didn't. There was all that business over the ski instructor, of course, but I'm certain in my own mind that he must have fallen down some crevasse or other. She married the Baron, and they lived just outside Bionk. I'd write to her with a little news every hog's watch. A very old werewolf family. A good pedigree, said Vimes absently. You know you wouldn't like Angua to hear you say that, Sam. Don't worry so. You'll have a chance to relax, I'm sure. It'll be good for you. Yes, dear. It'll be like a second honeymoon, said Sybil. Yes, indeed, said Vimes remembering that what with one thing and another they'd never really had a first one. "'On that, er, uh, subject,' said Sybil, a little more hesitantly, "'you remember I told you I was going to see old Mrs. Content?' "'Oh, yes, how is she?' Vimes was staring at the fireplace again. It wasn't just old school friends. Sometimes it seemed Sybil kept in touch with anyone she'd ever met. Her hogswatch card list ran to a second volume. "'Quite well, I believe. Anyway, she agrees that—' There was a knocking at the door. She sighed. "'It's Willikin's evening off,' she said. "'You'd better answer it, Sam. I know you want to.' "'I've told them not to disturb me unless it's serious,' said Vimes, getting up. "'Yes, but you think all crime is serious, Sam.' Carrot was on the doorstep. "'It's a bit political, sir,' he said. "'What's so political at a quarter ten at night, Captain?' "'The Dwarf Bread Museum's been broken into, sir,' said Carrot. Vimes looked into Carrot's honest blue eyes. "'A thought occurs to me, Captain,' he said slowly, "'and the thought is a certain item has gone missing.' "'That's right, sir. "'And it's the replica scone.' "'Yes, sir. "'Either they broke in just after we left, or—' <clears throat> "'Carrot licked his lips nervously. "'They were hiding while we were there.' Not rats, then. No, sir. Sorry, sir. Vimes fastened his cloak and took his helmet off its peg. So, someone has stolen a replica of the scone of stone a few weeks before the real one is due to be used in a very important ceremony, he said. I find this intriguing. That's what I thought too, sir. Vimes sighed. I hate the political ones. When they'd gone... Lady Sybil sat for a while, staring at her hands. Then she took a lamp into the library and pulled down a slim volume bound in white leather on which had been embossed in gold the words, Our Wedding. It had been a strange event. Ankh-Morpork's high society, so high that it's stinking, Sam always said, had turned up mostly out of curiosity. She was Ankh-Morpork's most eligible spinster, who'd never thought she'd be married. 
and he was a mere captain of the guard who tended to annoy a lot of people. And here were the iconographs of the event. There she was, looking rather more expansive than radiant, and there Sam was, scowling at the viewer with his hair hastily smoothed down. There was Sergeant Colon with his chest inflated so much his feet had almost left the ground, and Nobby grinning widely or perhaps just making a face. It was so hard to tell with Nobby. Sybil turned over the pages with care. She had put a sheet of tissue between each one to protect them. In many ways, she told herself, she was very lucky. She was proud of Sam. He worked hard for a lot of people. He cared about people who weren't important. He always had far more to cope with than was good for him. He was the most civilised man she'd ever met. Not a gentleman, thank goodness, but a gentle man. She never really knew what it was he did. Oh, she knew what the job was, but by all accounts he didn't spend much time behind his desk. When he eventually came to bed, he tended to drop his clothes straight into the laundry basket, so she'd only hear later from the laundry girl about the bloodstains and the mud. There were rumours of chases over rooftops, hand-to-hand -hand and knee-to-groin fights with men who had names like Harry the Bolt-Cutter Weems. There was a Sam she knew who went out and came home again, and there was another Sam Vimes who hardly belonged to her and lived in the same world as all those men with the dreadful names. Sybil Ramkin had been brought up to be thrifty, thoughtful, genteel in an outdoor sort of way, and to think kindly of people. She looked at the pictures again in the silence of the house. Then she blew her nose loudly and went off to do the packing and other sensible things.